The ability to live sustainably is cultural, so it's learned. And language, the oral language of the people, is what transmits the ecological wisdom to future generations. So language comes first. Language of the land comes first. And it allows the language of the land to be focused on the people who are speaking the language of that land. And through that, you create more created to it. Through that, your epistemologies become alive. Your song lines and your dance lines and just your general well-being is a part of that because you are connected in every way. We are the land and the land is we, and that voice of the land is what we speak as Indigenous peoples. The languages we use every day have great power. They shape our perceptions of the world around us. This episode is about why language matters when we talk about the environment. Can language evoke action? Does the language you use reflect your values? You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Marlene Even. I'm Aaron Stibby. I'm a professor of ecological linguistics at the University of Gloucestershire. So what exactly is an ecological linguist? We're interested in how language encourages people to protect the natural world or to destroy the natural world. So we might look at advertising and how advertising encourages people to buy things that they don't need, which then has an environmental impact. Or we might look at nature poetry and how that encourages people to respect and care for the natural world. Professor Aaron Stibby is the convener of the International Ecolinguistics Association. The group states there are two aims of ecolinguistics. One, to develop linguistic theories, which see humans not only as part of society, but also part of the larger ecosystems that life depends on. And two, how linguistics can be used to address key ecological issues. In 2019, The Guardian released a new style guide for their journalists to more accurately describe global environmental issues. Instead of global warming, it was recommended to use the term global heating. Instead of fish stocks, the preference is fish populations. Instead of biodiversity, wildlife. But let's take the example of the phrase climate change. The editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, told The Guardian that the phrase climate change sounds rather passive and gentle when what scientists are talking about is a catastrophe for humanity. So, their style guide recommends using the phrase climate emergency or climate crisis to describe the broader impacts of climate change. So, even by changing the words that are used signals that the situation may have reached a point where things are different, things are more serious. This is Dr Helen Bromhead. 
She is a linguist, a research fellow at the Griffith University's Centre for Social and Cultural Research, and project lead in the Griffith Climate Action Beacon. Dr Helen Bromhead says the phrases climate crisis and climate emergency carry with them the existing meanings of the English words crisis and emergency. Necessary action is part of the meaning of both of these terms, that someone has to do something now. The terms are different in nuance. Emergency implies immediate and fast action. Crisis uh, implies action that could be considered a bit more, but definitely uh, someone needs to do something in both an emergency and a crisis. Research by the Oxford English Dictionary found while climate change is still the most frequently used term in the mainstream media, climate emergency and climate crisis have significantly increased over the last two years. In the first half of 2021, climate emergency was used 76 times more frequently than in the first half of 2018. In the same time, the term climate crisis increased nearly 20-fold. Helen compares how these terms can incite action. And so I would say that the three terms, climate emergency, climate crisis, and to a less extent, climate catastrophe, well, climate catastrophe signals that very serious things are happening. So that may encourage people to action. I think climate change doesn't necessarily carry with it. The idea of necessary action is a bit more of a neutral term. While it is important to critique which terms to use to describe climate change accurately, Aaron argues that we should be cautious to not rule one term as the correct one. But there is a danger in saying we have to stop using this term and we have to start using this term because often we're talking to different audiences and certain terms or expressions will work well with one audience but may not work so well with another audience. He calls this danger ecological correctness or eco-correctness. The way that you are calling people to action, how effective is that? And if your call to action just puts people off and makes them feel like they're being told that they're doing something wrong, then they're not going to act. Whereas if you inspire them to make a difference and empower them, then they will act. One thing that is particularly interesting to me is the way in which addressing our concern to the concept of climate is in a way already distracts us perhaps from what's the real issue with climate action. This is Dr. Jeremy Walker. He is the co-director of the Climate Justice Research Centre at the University of Technology, Sydney. 
and a senior lecturer in the Social and Political Sciences program. So what, what do we mean when we say climate action? Core of what that must mean is to really shut down the fossil fuel industry, to phase it out, shut it down and replace it where necessary with non-polluting energy sources. So firstly, I think it's really interesting that we talk about climate a lot, but we very rarely are specific about what, what really that means, climate action, in a way that's there's part of our language which is continually displacing um, the problem and, and masking the problem with euphemisms and so on. Jeremy gives the example of the phrase combating climate change. We can't combat climate change. This is a very common phrase. Um, you really can't combat climate change. You, you, you might as well try to combat the stars or something like that. What we can do is to combat the you know, this, the system that we have, fossil fuel dependence and, and the preeminent power of um, predominantly, at least in, our, in Western society, of privately owned uh, fossil fuel production and, and consumption. Besides the terms climate change, climate crisis and climate emergency, you may be surprised by how much the English language impacts the way we perceive the environment in subtle, subconscious ways. One example is the idea of anthropocentrism, the philosophical view of a human-centred world, that human beings are superior or the most significant entity. And then the environment gets seen as something separate from humans whose purpose is only to like support human life. That's one aspect. But the other aspect is when uh, animals, plants, forests, rivers are just seen as resources. And this is so common in ecological discourse, especially when politicians talk about ecology. They talk about the resources, the natural resources, and as soon as you frame something as a resource, then that means that you're likely to exploit it because that's what you do with resources. A lot of sustainability is about sustainably exploiting resources. But the trouble is that kind of language doesn't really help us to imagine and care about the natural world. Earlier, I spoke about the Guardian's style guide and that they were recommending journalists to use the term fish populations rather than the term fish stock. Aaron explains why that change in language makes a difference. It's very hard to care about fish stocks, but it's much easier to care about salmon. And if the salmon being killed and poisoned just as a tragedy in itself, regardless of the level of fish stocks. So this shifts from an anthropocentrism, human-centred view of fish stock to a more ecocentrism, a nature-centred view of salmon. So beings who are thinking and feeling. And as soon as we start to see other beings in nature as having their own lives with their own intents and their own purposes, we start seeing them as being valuable in their own right. Then we're actually going to protect them.
How often do you hear someone say, how tall are you? How fast is that car? How big is your income? Do you notice something in each of these questions? We don't ask, how short are you? Or how slow is that car? Or how small is your income? It's an example from JSTOR Daily's resident linguist, Chi Lu, in an article, How Language and Climate Connect. She gives this example of the growth word always being regarded as neutral. There's something which is quite fundamental to the English language, and that is we have marked terms and unmarked terms. So we've got a whole list of terms. We've got happy, we've got unhappy, we've got satisfied, we've got unsatisfied, uh, we've got convenient, we've got inconvenient. And with these pairs of words, one of them is positive, convenient, and the other one, which is marked, is negative, so inconvenient. So convenience is always going to sound positive, but things that are convenient are not necessarily good, you know, for the environment. What we can do is we can have a look at the language and say, well, which things does our language itself make positive and what dangers are there to that? Dr. Jeremy Walker is a senior lecturer in the area of international political economy, environmental studies and environmental communication at the University of Technology, Sydney. He discusses the overlap between the language around ecology and economics. Well, growth is a biological metaphor, right? When we talk about the growth of the economy, uh, the economy is, you know, all of the activities that we engage in to make a living or to increase our wealth. But what's really growing when we grow the economy is, in fact, the, the quantity of uh, machines, uh, cars, houses, roads. So in other words, what's really happening is the rate at which we transform nature into artefacts. What, what is the effect of talking about economic growth? Well, on the one hand, it implies that the process is natural and good in the same way that, you know, you might visit your auntie when you're a child and they'll say, oh, how you've grown and that, that's a good thing. But when does this growth stop? That's where Jeremy says the metaphor falls down. Organisms grow until they reach uh, you know, maturity, and then they stop growing, and then they just maintain themselves, um, and then inevitably they senesce and they die. Whereas the, the economy is, um, in orthodox economic theory and political practice even to this day, presumed to be infinite. When you listen to a UN meeting, we often hear a lot of discussions in English or translated to English. So how does using the English language as a dominant language in international discussions unintentionally affect our perceptions of the environment? The discourses of consumerism really have been spreading around the world with the spread of the English language. So I was teaching English in Japan and I realized that it would be good to start talking about some environmental issues. Aaron analyzed 26 environmental education textbooks 
written in English by authors from the United States or the United Kingdom that were used in Japanese universities. And so I felt that there were these anthropocentric and consumerist messages coming through the English language into Japan through these textbooks. And really what was needed was to dig deeply into traditional Japanese culture and find ecological ways of thinking about the world and talking about the world, and then express those outwards in English across the world. So I feel English is spreading across the world, bringing discourses of consumerism or very narrow anthropocentric kinds of environmentalism. And this is having a devastating impact across the world. And we need to reach the cultures that are being dominated by English and reveal their ecological wisdom and spread that across the world instead. Dr. Helen Bromhead is a linguist researching how to make messaging about climate change and natural disasters clearer and easier to translate. Sometimes in English, we'll use a figurative language, something that sounds quite snappy in English, like beat the heat. One big uh, natural disaster message or extreme weather message in Australia is if it's flooded, forget it. But that's very idiomatic. Idiomatic is figurative language. It's a group of words that have a different meaning to the meaning of each word alone. An example of an idiom is to pull the plug, which is to prevent something from happening. Or if you were to say, my shout, which means it's my turn to pay. This is an advertisement by the ACT Emergency Services in Australia. When you're faced with flood water, the smartest and bravest thing you can do is back it up. If it's flooded, forget it. There have been studies where uh, community translators, so not professional translators, but people helping out in their community, try to translate some of these messages. And if it's flooded, forget it, can be very difficult to translate. Forget it is very specific to English and the tone could sound disrespectful in, in other languages. If it's flooded, forget it. Even the word flood is a unique English word. In a recent article, Helen explains it's geographically and culturally constructed. In the settler colonial context of Australia, understandings of the landscape have been essentially imposed from British understandings of the landscape, one of which is that rivers are relatively fixed places. Whereas in the Australian situation, the waterways that we have in the country are not like that at all. And they regularly go over what are called in English, the banks. Uh, this is not a surprising thing to happen. It's part of the environment, part of the seasonal behaviour of water in Australia. This 
behaviour of rivers becomes a problem when one lives in fixed cities and towns along the banks of the river. Whereas you can contrast that to First Nations understanding of living in accordance with seasons. So when rivers are in flood, as we would say in English, people would not be living there. She explains this is because people are living with the knowledge of seasons and moved accordingly. Floods to us as a people, you know, it's a cleansing component. Like if you're describing the kidneys, like there, there are lake there are lake systems that are, you know, connected and through it runs a river. This is Lee Joachim. He is a Yorta Yorta man and board member of Living Languages, an organisation that supports Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are working to maintain, revitalise and reclaim languages. So if we look at Barber Lake and Moira Lake, we understand that that river will flood. It'll flood out to, to you know, the two lakes and then it'll flood out into the wider environment, causing that that you know, that cleansing of the environment, flushing back into the system and flowing further on down. Floods, when my grandmother described them, how she lived on the riverbanks and, you know, how they were flooded, yep, it it was never seen as an inconvenience. It was a part of the system that was required to sustain the land, to sustain animals, to sustain plants. So it is about, you know, you're sharing this with an action that needs to take place um, for us as a people to survive, but also those that are, are being provided for us, such as, you know, plants and animals. A good thing, not a bad thing. In Australia, there are more than 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages, including around 800 dialects. Language comes before, became before the people. Language is the first thing that existed within this, and it's, it's everything that is made up of everything that was before us. And then it provided the language for us as people to speak. Look, the importance of local Indigenous language right across this landscape, whether you are mountain people, whether you are desert people or whether you are river people, um, these people understand and through their language have maintained thousands and thousands of years of sustainability through understanding how their country walks and how their country talks to them. So therefore, the importance of understanding Indigenous languages across this wide nation is so connected to how we look into the future in regards to climatic change and how we can, as Indigenous populations, maintain our connection to the land that we belong and we are made from. And Lee adds that this includes sign language. 
there are so many different sign languages, you know, across the world, but as Indigenous peoples across the broader landscape, sign language was how we spoke. And we all had that same sort of movement. We all recognised the same signs in, in regards to that. So that allowed us to talk through song and dance because we had that similarity. We had that interconnectedness because of the landscape creating the ability for us to dance and for us to, to sing in relation to that. Those actions, that sign language is really, really important. And I don't think anyone talks about that. In this episode of Think Sustainability, we've heard about the different ways language can impact how we perceive the environment in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. Dr Jeremy Walker teaches a subject called environmental communication. The subject teaches students to critically analyse how environmental issues are communicated in the public sphere. You know, on the one hand, you we need to be careful and critical about the, the terms and the languages and the images that we use uh, to to try and understand where we're up to. And but also we need to be aware that a lot of the, the terms and language that you know, gets put into the public sphere, into the into the media, into the political discussions, has been is is kind of. It is, you know, to put it bluntly, um, propaganda. Its its role is to kind of uh, distract us, to frame issues in certain ways that that make um, other things out, out of the frame, that make them invisible to us, uh, to to divide constituencies and so on. I think it's really important to, to look at where terms come from and, and how they're used and who's using them and to what purposes. Professor of Ecological Linguistics, Aaron Stibby, believes everyone can be an ecolinguist. So some people see ecolinguistics as an academic pursuit. It's about writing journal articles or monographs. But really, I think that everyone can be an ecolinguist. And being an ecolinguist really just means being very aware of the stories that you live by. To do this, he says you need to have an idea of your ecological philosophy. What would an ideal world look like for you? So in an ideal world, perhaps you'd see human societies being quite equal to each other. You'd see animals and plants and forests and rivers being respected for their own inherent value and protected for the future of life on Earth. So you'd have your own ecosophy and this would help guide you in terms of which stories are positive and aligned with and really help your ecosophy and which ones go against your ecosophy, which ones are harmful and, and destructive. So once you've got your own ecological philosophy or, or ecosophy, you can start to notice how you're speaking and how you're writing and whether the stories you are telling align with your values, your beliefs, or whether they go against them. So it's really a critical awareness of language 
and it's noticing destructive forms of language and resisting them and seeking out positive forms of language and then using them to try to make a difference. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.